You're listening to Greater LA from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. All right, very good. Okay, now listen up. Uh, Today we're headed to Susan Miller Dorsey Senior High School in the Crenshaw District, where we meet a freshman. Hi, I'm Aaliyah. Um, I go to Dorsey and I'm in the ninth grade. And her sister, who's seven years older. Hi, my name is Marche. I am a graduate of Dorsey High School, class of 2019. Marche says her younger sister is having a very different experience at Dorsey than she did. The school culture has changed, and that's due in part to something called the Black Student Achievement Plan, which directed millions of dollars away from school police and toward black students. It's been two years since the LAUSD approved the plan, and KCRW's Robin Estrin tells us what's happened since. Marche and Aaliyah Doss are kind of similar. We are similar in the ways of being funny and goofy everywhere we go. Uh, We both like to dance no matter where we are. But in other ways, they're opposites. Marche is a morning person. In high school, she was outgoing. It was really fun when I was with my friends (laughs) and I was hanging out, going to basketball games. I became a cheerleader, had a lot of school pride. Aaliyah, now a freshman at Dorsey High School, wakes up maybe an hour before the first bell. She's more shy, at least talking to me, and really into video games. Um, I play Fortnite, Roblox, Call of Duty. Their experiences of high school are gearing up to be pretty different, too. Marche graduated from Dorsey four years ago, and when she was a student, Los Angeles school police officers were permanently stationed on the campus here. Students were sometimes pulled out of class at random and searched. For instance, once when Marche was in 10th grade. I was put into the hallway with five other students and we were told to dump everything out of our backpacks. But I wasn't moving fast enough. So that person came and dumped all my things out of my bag. All my personal feminine items were on the floor. People were walking by and it just... That experience alone make you feel like you did something wrong. The incident spurred Marche's activism. She joined a local student organization called Students Deserve, which was fighting to end criminalization policies in LAUSD. In 2019, the group successfully pushed the school board to put an end to random searches. But it did not stop there. During the George Floyd uprisings in 2020, Marche and students deserve pushed the school board to cut $25 million from the school police budget and invest it into black students, which they did. Then, two years ago, in February of 2021, the board adopted and funded something called the Black Student Achievement Plan. The reality is this, that we have mounds of troubling data that shows that Black students have consistently fared poorer than their non-Black peers. Tyrone Howard is an education professor at UCLA. He says the plan didn't just come from a sudden desire to remedy racial gaps in test scores and other academic metrics. This achievement plan came out of a moment, and that moment was tied to the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter movement. So there was a lot of pressure on institutions across the country to do better by black people. So this was LAUSD's 
response to those pressures and to that effort. The plan allocated millions of dollars to schools that educate the district's black children with the goal of closing those gaps in opportunity and achievement. It allowed schools to hire staff dedicated to the well-being and academic success of black students, build community partnerships, and develop culturally relevant curriculum. About half of Dorsey's students are Black, making the school eligible for a share of those resources. The changes were felt immediately. Police headquarters were kicked off campus, and the school hired a social worker, a restorative justice teacher, and staff with a brand new job, school climate advocate. Their task is to improve school culture with conflict resolution and social-emotional learning. I would say the biggest thing, the biggest change that I've like recognized is students' willingness to lean into systems of support. James Wilson is one of Dorsey's new school climate advocates. Um, when we first got here, a lot of pushback, a lot of resistance. Now, like, our door is con- like our door is revolving. Kids are constantly knocking, and it's because we've done a lot of work to build our relationships and to make sure that our space is like welcoming and accommodating and attractive to them. Suddenly, there was money at Dorsey for field trips. In April, assistant principal George Lynn says the school is sending 30 students to Atlanta, Georgia, to tour the area's historically black colleges and universities, all expenses paid. The plane tickets have been ordered. We have the chaperones and they're and they're going to be it's just going to be an exciting experience and really um, hopefully transformative for our students. So we're, we're really looking forward to that. And the whole team's really excited. All the focus on Black students, who make up just 7% of LAUSD's enrollment, has led to some resentment. Three-quarters of the students in LAUSD are Latino and also underserved. Here's UCLA professor Tyrone Howard again. So there are actors in schools that are never, or that I'm not aware of, will never go on the record, but they have some real deep concerns worries or just um, curiosity about why there's a need for such a program. At Dorsey, the student body is evenly split between Black and Latino students. School climate advocate James Wilson says some students have come to him directly with questions about the plan. Right, so now that we have this plan, this success plan, specifically for Black students, naturally everybody's like, well, what about Latino students? They're They're carrying like a mantle Education and equity impacts them tremendously. Wilson says all Dorsey students are welcome to use the new resources and attend field trips. And as Howard puts it, rising tides lift all boats. We have to continue to stress that this is not a zero-sum game. Giving to Black students does not mean you are taken away from other students. (laughs) It's just not. Two years after the Black Student Achievement Plan was implemented, regular surveys show Black students and families across the district are more engaged with school. Here's Jared Dupree, who oversees the plan for LAUSD. Black students are feeling heard. They're feeling valued at the school sites. We see an increase in Black students being at school on a regular basis. But academic gains so far have been less pronounced. State testing data shows that the percentage of Black students who are proficient in math and English remains low in the single and low double digits, depending on grade level. Pandemic disruption is, of course, a factor, but Howard, the education professor, says there's more to it. Part of what we cannot do is say, Black Student Achievement Plan, we're going to give you two years to undo 
uh, years and years and years of Jim Crow laws, of segregation, of separate but unequal schools, the history of slavery. So we have been facing this uphill battle for equal education for black students for a long time in this country. Still, the pressure to produce results is on. Dupree told the LAUSD superintendent and board that he expects to see students' grades and test scores significantly improve by 2026. He's also made the case that black student achievement is about more than test scores. That's how Dorsey grad Marche Doss sees it. Black student achievement is a free, healthy, happy, well-rounded black child. It looks like a dreamer. Like her sister, Aaliyah, who's already thinking about life after high school. I was thinking of going to USC or Yale because Yale's a pretty big school and I wanted to do real estate. Okay, prestigious over here. What does that mean? For KCRW, I'm Robin Estrin. Well, in another effort to promote racial equity in education, over in Culver City, Culver City High School did away with honors English classes in favor of keeping students of all learning levels in one class. But not everyone is happy about that change. At a recent school board meeting, a group of parents put forward their own resolution calling for the classes to be reinstated and more of an effort to be made to attract a diverse set of students to take honors classes. The district has not addressed the underlying issues of underrepresentation experienced by black and brown students in honors classes and has replaced previous honors English content with a one-size-fits-all class. The district has failed to designate honors classes under the University of California system, eliminating any competitive advantage to students who have who have taken honors classes while having in the college admission process. Whereas nearly 1,200 families have signed a petition demanding that honors be reinstated in the middle school and high school. Now, therefore, be it resolved that the Culver City Unified School District will restore honors as a self-selecting program open to all students. And Culver City is not the only school system making this change or the only one receiving heat for it from some parents and students. Sarah Rondazzo recently covered the situation in Culver City for the Wall Street Journal, and she's here with us to talk about it right now. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Let's let's talk exactly um, what Culver City High School has done, um, how the, the school changed things, and what reason does it give for making that change? Yeah, so the school district said that the English teachers at the high school there were looking at the enrollment in AP English, which is, you know, advanced placements advanced placement English, which you take your junior, senior year of high school, that's the most rigorous option you can take for English. And they looked and saw that not enough Black and Latino students were in the class to their, um, you know, liking compared to the broader student population. And so they were looking for ways to essentially try to remedy this. And they came up with a solution that a few other districts around the country have also done, which is make everything equal in the ninth and 10th grade English. Everyone now has only one option, they can take college prep English rather than choosing between college prep and honors. And their thinking is, if everyone's in the same level for these two years, everyone will feel that they have the option of taking AP English later in high school. Before, they said people were essentially in tracks, and if you were an honors kid, you were an honors kid, and if you weren't, you kind of didn't see AP as an option. So that's the logic that they've laid out. How are students selected for for either the honors class or the regular English class? I mean, how has that been done in the past? Is it just up to the student to say, I really like the subject, so I really want to do it? 
with honors. In Culver City, the most recent system was that anyone could opt in. I think that has evolved over time. You know, I think at some points, teachers had to recommend students, and this is in Culver City and elsewhere. Everyone has a different way of doing it. Sometimes you need a teacher recommendation. Sometimes you need certain grades. But in recent years in Culver City, anyone could opt in, which is why some parents who are upset about this change said, hey, this was an open system to begin with. Why don't you just encourage more kids to opt into honors, you know, rather than just taking away the option altogether? I mean, is is the idea, Sarah, that that once a student is labeled an honors student, or or once someone's labeled a regular student, that you know, it changes how they see themselves, and then you know, vis-a-vis how they learn? Yeah, exactly. I think that's definitely one of the big arguments toward eliminating the honors label is that. A lot of um, academics and, you know, teachers are saying, hey, these kids are kind of stuck with these labels. Sometimes as early as, you know, even fifth or sixth grade, you're put on the honors track versus not. And kids who aren't in the honors track think, oh, I guess I'm not one of the smart kids. So I'll just, you know, kind of take these classes over here and, and maybe that's just what I'm destined to do. And so I think they're trying to make everyone have a broader mindset and think they could be, you know, say on on the honors track. But it's a hard thing of, you know, if people feel like they're stuck in one track or the other, is the answer to just eliminate the tracks altogether or, or maybe think of ways to move kids from one to the other. You know, there's really a lot of arguments in both directions. In both directions, for sure. Uh, let's talk about the disparity that you mentioned at the top, you know, at Culver City High School when it came to who was taking the AP English class. How big was that disparity? It was interesting. It really kind of varied by group. They gave a limited data set in a board presentation, and I tried to get um, more granular numbers, but the ones that they presented to the board showed that Latino students made up 13% of those in the 12th grade AP English class, and that's compared with 37% of the student body. So 13 compared to 37, definitely a disparity there. Asian students, um, conversely, were 34% of AP English compared to 10% of students. And for black students, it was 14% of AP English versus 15% of the student body. So, uh, you know, a little bit less of a, a disparity there. And the board presentation didn't break out the numbers for white students. It said that most of the students in the classes, advanced classes were white, but if you add up all these other numbers, it must have been much less than 50%, so they basically didn't break out the white percentages. Some parents and students, and and also even some educators, um, say they don't support this move. What is their argument? What, What do they say about all of this? Yeah, there's a lot of pushback to this, both in Culver City and in other places that have done this, where people basically say that, you know, the answer to, to creating a better education isn't to take away opportunities. Instead, it's maybe to try to, you know, create higher rigor and, and get more kids into these classes who should be. Um, and so they're just, there's just a lot of parents who are really upset who basically they want their kids in these honors classes. You know, they want both for the prestige level and just for the um, environment it would create, and they're very upset that they don't exist. The school has has argued, well, we're trying to now teach everyone with a higher rigor, but you know, I think there's a lot of questions around. You could say that essentially now every class is being taught on an honors level, but is that really realistic? You know, just given the complexities of the classroom and everything a teacher has to deal with, can can every class really be honors? Is kind of the the big debate. And didn't the Santa Monica school says so Santa Monica Malibu, right? They're a combined school system. Didn't they make a similar move last year? Yeah, and, the exact and have they same had, thing. Well, have they had time to look at it is what I'm saying. 
I want to follow up with them because they made the change pretty recently as well. So I don't think they've released any reports or anything yet on kind of, you know, we've made this change. What differences are we seeing? But that one also was very much driven by the English teachers. The English department gave a, a big presentation last year to their board there and, and made the similar change. And they seemed really excited about it. But I think it's also a little too early in Santa Monica to know, um, you know, if anything's been measured that's different or, or just even anecdotally, I haven't heard yet um, what the changes meant there, but they did the pretty much identical thing. And in, in San Diego, there was another high school at Patrick Henry High School that, that planned to eliminate honors American lit and U.S. history last year for 11th graders, but the school backed off after a big pushback. Do you think the same thing will happen in Culver City or in Santa Monica, Malibu? It seems like Culver City and Santa Monica are pretty set on this for English, at least for now. You know, in Culver City, there's a group of parents trying to get the board to take up a resolution to, to reconsider it, but it, it doesn't seem like it's getting too much traction yet. You know, the superintendent told me in Culver City that they plan to move forward. So, you know, as of right now, I, I don't think there's plans to reverse it, but there have definitely been situations like the San Diego one you mentioned and some on the East Coast where, um, you know, some pushback led the schools and the districts to reconsider. Sarah Rendazzo of the Wall Street Journal, who's based here in L.A. Sarah, thanks for coming on and explaining it to us. Sure thing. All right, coming up, art with sexual overtones and art featuring themes of war. And no, they're not the same exhibit. Hear about them after this short break. You're listening to GLA. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiotakis. The world is... Pretty heavy these days, but art doesn't have to be when dealing with tough subjects. Two gallery shows up in L.A. do just that. Truly Hall's Plays on Foreplay explores sexuality and gender in a bold and, I dare say, animalistic way, literally. And Amir Fala's A War on Wars is a colorful vision of armed, bloody conflict. Lindsay Preston Zappas is founder and editor-in-chief of Contemporary Art Review Los Angeles. She's with us right now. Hi, Lindsay. Hey, Steve. Let's talk about Truly Hall's show first. I see um, it's very colorful. I see deep blues and oranges um, and a lot of seemingly, seemingly sexual overtones. (laughs) What's going on there? Yeah, for sure. I think you picked up on that. You know, you walk into the gallery and you're just confronted with all these paintings that include, like you said, blue and orange. And you have these nude blue female figures and orange tigers and we kind of see all these characters swirling together in different scenarios. Uh, the tigers are kind of interacting with the women in almost an orgiastic way, I would say, in certain paintings. Um, I should mention there are also two huge, large sculptural blue breasts that are like hanging down from the ceiling. There's definitely some activity. There's groping, there's chains. There's like some obviously sexual and sensual activity happening 
But what truly does so well is she creates a playfulness out of these themes, right? So truly works across multiple mediums as well. So the work starts as paintings, but then there's videos that hang next to the paintings and these become, these scenes all of a sudden become live action and then morph into claymation and puppetry and sculpture. So she's really combining all of these mediums uh, to really create a certain DIY quality that, that gives the work a really playful and, and kind of gritty quality. Here's part of an interview that you did with her for, for your Carla podcast, um, where she elaborates on, on her aesthetic, which she describes as juicy. That's her word. I want to have a like a welcome mat in front of even the most difficult conversations. So something that might be problematic or difficult to deal with is still fun at the same time. Hmm. So it's like a humorous play on even the darkest subjects. Yes, that oh, I just love her. This is so, so truly like she's so fearless in approaching subjects that we might think of as taboo or be afraid to talk about. And she wants to make these, as she says, juicy and playful. Uh, so, for instance, in the show, we see a woman riding a tiger that has chains around its neck. So, you know, there's a suggestion of bestiality or BDSM or certain themes that we might not be super willing to, to talk about. But, you know, we look in the video and there's also people in the background dressed up as clouds and kind of camouflage. And it feels very campy. There's blue wigs. Uh, there's this uh, kind of like campiness to it all that makes it feel really playful and funny and sort of welcomes an audience into these conversations. Let's talk about Amir Fala. He's uh, he's an L.A. based artist, again, dealing with a very adult subject, which is war. But but his color palette um, doesn't feel very adult. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think so, in a similar way to Truly, his work is so bright and colorful, it's figurative, there's a ton of pattern, and it really guides you in as a viewer. There's so many little details to look at, and again, similar to Truly, I think the aesthetic sort of holds your hand as a viewer into the subject matter. Uh, so, you know, I think these paintings work on a couple levels. You can sort of look at them aesthetically and just marvel at the colors and patterns. And they're just so stunning. But if you dig into their meaning, you can really pick up on Amir's references. For instance, one of the pieces of the show has these ornate borders drawn, and these are taken from Persian manuscript paintings. So each little detail holds a very specific meaning for the artist. Right. And the, and the theme, as you say, is war. He was born in mm. Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, right, of the 1980s. Yeah. So what is, what's he trying to say here? Yeah, I mean, I think, it, like I said, if you dig into these paintings, there's so many details that are linked to his childhood and growing up in Iran and the conflicts there. And then I should mention also that there's a public artwork that's installed on the exterior of the gallery. This is a piece called Chant, and it's a neon work uh, that is a sun with a female face at the center. And this piece is a public work that will but directly benefit the protest efforts in Iran that are going on, you know, recently and currently. And, you know, despite the title of the show and the themes, I've always felt that Amir's work offers hope. You know, the symbols here really point to growth and a more equitable future. And I think underneath these themes, there's a really hopeful message that celebrates culture and how that culture influences each of our unique identities. 
Well, both shows are up now. You can find a link to those shows at our website, kcrw.com slash GLA. Lindsay Preston Zappas from Carla. Lindsay, always thanks. Thanks so much, Steve. Well, that's all the time we have for this evening. Next week, the pandemic did a number on so many things, most importantly, lives. But it also wreaked a lot of havoc on live gatherings, such as theater, how one small theater is coming back much differently now. Share a story idea. I know you have one. Share your thoughts. Share those ears, too, at the website, kcrw.com slash GLA, and get the podcast as well at the website. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Phil Richards, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Sue Margulies, and Christian Bordall all had hands on today's episode. I'm Steve Chiotakis. Thanks for the time. Thanks for the ear. Have a good night.